be seated. And kids, as you get ready to make your way to your class, I have a question for you. If you had your choice to do math or watch a movie, which are you going to choose? I, I heard somebody say math. I think that was an adult. <laughs> You're going to do the movie. Why? Why are movies more fun than math or science or history or pretty much any other subject? You like science more? You know, we love movies, and what we're going to talk about with the adults is why are stories so powerful? So when you get back and see your parents for lunch, hopefully you remember and you ask them, why are stories so powerful? But right now, you can stand up and head with your teacher to your class. And that's the, that's the question that every kid knows, and I want you to think about, is what makes movies, what makes stories so moving, so powerful? Last week, we looked at why songs are so powerful, but now I want to think about what makes stories so powerful. And uh, if you happen to be in the hunt for a new job, maybe you could think about becoming a Hollywood screenwriter. Now, I found out this, this week, this blew my mind, but 40 years ago, the average American's duration in their career or their job, the average American stayed at one, vocate, one career, one place of work for 25 years. That was the average, 25 years. Do you know what it is now? Two. That's close. Four. It's four. The average American stays at their, their place of occupation for four years, so moving jobs every four years. And uh, so maybe if you're in one of those seasons, I mean, think about it. How fast did your high school years go by? That's it. That's how long you're going to be at your present job. And uh, if you're looking for a new job, one thing you might want to think about is becoming a Hollywood script writer. It's a pretty, it's a very difficult job to get, but once you get it, uh, it pays pretty well. And we are living in the age of, uh, I don't know if it's the golden age of television or not, but there is a very high demand for content. So you have corporations like Netflix, uh, Amazon, they're creating all of these shows and they need writers. And so I'll kind of walk you through the career path if you want to think about becoming a scriptwriter. Uh, the first goal is to try and become a scriptwriter for one of the kind of smaller television shows, small-time TV shows. Most of those shows have about 26 episodes per season, and the starting pay for a scriptwriter is $2,500 per episode. So if you get on one of those shows, I mean, that's 65 uh, grand a year. And the goal from there is to become a regular established writer for one of the uh, con consistent shows. So, for example, The Simpsons. You know, the Simpsons are celebrating their 30th year of television. They're older than many of you in this room. And they have, uh, you, you have four junior writers and five regular writers on The Simpsons. And when you graduate to be a junior writer, you get $10,000 an episode, each one of the junior writers. The regular writers get $50,000 per show. I was reading one article from one of the writers. His quote was, quote, I can't believe we're still making this. And then I fill in the blank. I can't say it. So there's six of them, the main writers, and they get $50,000 per show. And then the next kind of level up is when you become a writer that can then become an executive producer. And this is kind of when you get into the land of the kabajillionaires, like J.J. Uh, Abrams, who averages $36 million per script he works on. So he did 
such things like Armageddon and then Star Trek, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, he's doing the newest one. Or like uh, Simon Cowell from American Idol. He became the executive producer, and in the last season of American Idol, he got $2.7 million per show, $70 million to write and produce. And so you don't even have to make it like to that level to do pretty well. Dale Launer, who wrote the smash hit Bad Dog, got $3 million for that script. Or Brian Hedgelin for A Knight's Tale. Remember the Heath Ledger movie got $2.5 million for that script. Or David Kep, who wrote Panic Room, $3 million for that script. Now, uh, what's interesting is what the script writers will say is the two hardest scripts to write are scripts about superheroes and Bible stories. And the reason why they're so hard is because everyone already has an idea about what the story should be. Everybody already has an idea about how Spider-Man should look and talk and act, and everybody already knows about the Bible stories, and everybody has strong opinions about them. So superhero and Bible stories are some of the hardest, but it hasn't stopped them from trying. And so this really, the, the ride, kind of the Bible movie, really got in full effect after The Passion of the Christ, because it started out, it had a $30 million budget, and then in the theatrical run, made $611 million in gross profit, just from the theatrical run. So obviously, in Hollywood, money talks. So then other big studios wanted to make big-time Bible movies. So you had things like the History Channel, had their whole series on the Bible that the ratings were this smash hit and almost saved them from, from bankruptcy. And then they did all types of spinoffs and plans. And several years ago, 2014, was dubbed the big box office Bible year. It's going to be the year of the big box office Bible movies. So there were three movies that the major studios were putting out that were all based on the Bible that had over $150 million budgets. So you had the, the Noah movie with Russell Crowe. Then you had two movies from Exodus, uh, Ridley Scott's uh, Exodus, and then Gods and Kings that Steven Spielberg actually started and then uh, pulled out and handed it over to Ang Lee, who did The Hulk. So he had no problem with doing Bible and superhero movies. And then he took, uh, he took that on. But what was interesting is none of those movies were commercial successes. They weren't critically acclaimed very well. Uh, all three of those actually lost a lot of money. And when they were kind of describing what went wrong... Why did it not, these movies about Exodus and Noah not connect to audiences? Steven Spielberg was honest and said, look, Exodus is a really hard story to tell. It's a really hard story to tell. So what we're going to do this morning, we're talking about worship. And, uh, but when I connect our songs and our stories, but I want to think about why first, why is Exodus such a hard story to tell? Because you look at the story you know, Exodus. And so for our text this morning, we're actually going to be looking at the whole book of Exodus. I'm going to look at the three-piece movement of the story that it's trying to tell us. And uh, the reason why it's actually a hard story to tell in, in a film, in theaters, is because the first 17 chapters are filled with action. It's all the dramatic stuff that you go to the movies for with gods and kings and Pharaoh and Moses and, and plagues and, and redemption and rescue and restoration. And it's all this dramatic action. And then the story appears to almost bog down in chapter 19. And then from just in Exodus from 19 all the way to 40, they don't go anywhere. And it almost appears like they don't do anything 
Moses goes up onto the mountain of Sinai, and they're at the foot of Sinai for the next uh, 21 chapters. But actually, what makes it difficult to tell the story in a movie actually points to the point of the story. Because the point of the story is not to entertain you, it's to encounter him. So it doesn't really make for a good movie, but it makes for really good theology. And it makes for a really good experience of worship because the point's not to entertain you, but it's to encounter him, is to come into his presence. The whole point of the first part of Exodus is to deliver them out of slavery, to bring them through the wilderness, and then bring them into God's presence so they encounter the living Lord. That is the point. The point's not entertainment. The point is worship. The point is to come into the Lord's presence. So what we're talking about now in the life of our church is we're, uh, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians since June, and the idea is that in the life stage of our church, what we want to do is to plant our organizational structure into the soil of the book of Ephesians, because there's no better book that gives us a richer, uh, more vibrant soil of theology in which a healthy church can grow out of. So we're, we're, we want to plant our organizational seeds down in that soil and watch and see how it shapes who we're going to become in the future. And in chapter 5, Paul tells us that... Uh, the goal, he's going to tell us that chapters 1 through 3 are all about the incredible redemption you can experience, the power, the transformative power of grace, how you've been raised from death to life, you've been brought to become a new people, and God's going to display his glory, power, and wisdom to all of the heavenlies by this new people that he's fashioning. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it says, all right, how do you come down from heaven and say, how do you live this out in your life? The nitty-gritty daily aspects of life at your work, at your home, in your church. And then in chapter 5 at the end, it says the whole key to living this is you have to be filled with the Spirit. A Holy Spirit-filled people, persons and then people. And there's two marks of being filled with the Spirit. You sing and you submit. You sing songs to one another, Spirit-filled songs, and then you submit to one another. And so we're going to be talking about leadership structure and songs, and for the next couple weeks, we're spending thinking about the power of our songs, why we sing the songs we do, why we shape the worship service the way we do. And over the next couple weeks, the goal is to help you develop a greater appreciation for why it is that we do what we do. So why are we singing? And so what I want to do this morning is last week we looked at the power of songs, how they're, how they're powerful to move us and shape us. This morning I want to look at the power of the, a story, why stories are so powerful, and then talk about how in worship we're actually fusing the two, bringing song and story together. So we're going to look at this morning the big picture story of the book of Exodus. And our key idea is that uh, God... In, in the Old Testament, what faithful worship is, is that God has revealed himself, and then we respond. So healthy, holy worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. So let's pick up, and if you have your bulletins, you look on the back, or you can bring up the first slide. We'll have a couple things, but let's kind of pick up and get a sense of the, the big picture. And I'll use a couple different texts to be lenses to help you see the whole story. But if you have your Bible or just want to look there in Exodus chapter 6, the little note, verse 6, 6, this gets you at the theme of the entire book. And actually, I'll start reading from chapter 6, verse 2. God also said to Moses, 
I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name is the Lord, and I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the hands of the Egyptians. And that verse, verse 6, and then verse 7, really gets at the very theme, the heart of the entire uh, story. The whole story is about how do you know who the Lord your God is. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The whole theme is that God is going to display and declare who he is. Actually, if you want this holidays, a good reading exercise is you could read through the whole book of Exodus, probably take you three or four hours. It'd take you about as long as it would to watch the movies. And then you could take a little pen and every time you see that phrase, so that you may know, that you may know that I am the Lord, you underline it and see how often you underline it and make note. That's the point of the book. The point of the book is that you will know who he is and he reveals himself. He starts out in verse uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, he comes to Moses at the burning bush, and he reveals himself that you may know that I am who I am, not who you think I am or who you would like me to be. I am who I am, and now I'm about to reveal that to you, to, uh, to Israel, to Egypt, and to the world. And how you respond to him determines how you encounter him. Everybody's going to encounter him, but either in mercy or in judgment. And then chapter 5, so you can look back to chapter 5 or just look at the the thing printed out on your sheet. Chapter 5 kind of sets up the drama. The whole drama, because Moses comes to Pharaoh, and in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So that's the whole drama. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord. And this isn't like an atheistic question where he's saying, oh, who is God? You know, I don't believe in God. No, Pharaoh believed in God. He just thought he was it. So if the Israelites came to him and said, oh, the Lord has told us we need to go, he said, oh, that may be fine for all of you peon peasants. You can worship that weak deity if you want to. That's good for you. But for me, I worship me. And so I don't need to obey or bow down to anyone. And then that sets the whole drama. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then you'll see three key movements of the whole story or answering that question. Who is the Lord that we should obey him? And what you see is you go through the whole book, and the whole book tells you he is the God who saves, he's the God who guides, and then he's a God who dwells. He saves, he guides, he dwells. Or to get our uh, rhetorical rhythm and balance, our three things that you see on your sheet, he's the God who delivers, he's the God who directs, and then he's the God who dwells. So that's the story of Exodus. God delivers, God directs, God dwells. And that's the story of our 
worship as well. Three movements. So let's look at the first, God who delivers. And in Exodus chapters 1 through chapter 13 are all about the God who delivers. He delivers out of slavery. Chapters 1 and 2 take you behind the scenes and they set the stage for the problem. And you can flip over or just listen in chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It's really this fascinating word where it says in chapter 1, verse 14, they made, the Egyptians made there, the Israelites' lives bitter with harsh work, in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh work, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You know, that word for work is the same word for serve, or it's the same word for worship, to worship, to work, to serve. And so part of the, the theme is, who are you going to work for? Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to worship? Who you work for is who you worship. There's a connection between worship and service. So in one sense, like we call this a worship service, it's kind of redundant because they mean the same thing. Worship and service are the same thing, and that's one of the themes. And in chapter 3, it says the theme is I'm going to redeem them out of this harsh labor into life-giving, life-affirming labor, or redeem them out of slavery into worship. And one of the things the Bible teaches us, and it teaches this, them very graphically and pictorially in the first 13 chapters, is what real freedom is. Real freedom is not having no master or not being your own master. Real freedom is having the right master. See, all of us, is, we're going to serve, we're going to work, we're going to worship somebody or something. The question is not, will you serve something? It's, who will you serve? And what you will serve? Echoes of a Bob Dylan song ringing in the back of my mind. Is that, you know, that's, that's there. So that's what the first chapters 1 through 13 are all about. Anything other than so what we work for, what we serve, anything other than God that you actually absolutely have to have or feel your security in or gives you a sense of significance and makes your life feel important, uh, that's your master. So one of the themes from 1 through 13 is that God is going to deliver you from idolatry or from slavery because any other master will keep you chained. You know, when we were at our church in Alabama, one of the interesting things we did is, uh, so we're, we're establishing all of our basic documents for our church, like bylaws, church membership, statement of faith. And uh, at the church uh, I worked at, actually the church I worked in Kentucky, was the longest running, still functioning church in Kentucky. It was established in the 1740s and still, still going, still limping along. And it was so fascinating to read all of like the documents and the minutes from from, you know, the 1880s and see the type of things they were wrestling with in the church. And I did that at our church in Alabama. It was so interesting because in our church in Alabama, um, the, so the way it's set up is every month you would come to the members meeting and they would, uh, they took very seriously your, your uh, faithful living in the community. So you'd come to the members meetings and the, uh, the preachers would reprimand you for the way you were living. And, uh, our members' meetings won't quite be like that, but 
it was interesting to see the things that people got reprimanded for. They got reprimanded for like drinking, uh, excessive card playing, lewd dancing. One of my favorites was in the, uh, at our church in Alabama, there was a large scandal in the 19, it was 1915, 16, 17, and there was a large scandal because women were wearing ostentatious hats. So there's this problem of women wearing these hats that were so ostentatious, so big and flamboyant, nobody could see behind them. So people couldn't see, and they were being selfish by their... So we had to have church discipline exercise for the ostentatious hats and uh, desecrating the Sabbath, things like that. But what's interesting is one thing that never really came to the surface was the battle against idolatry. When what you see in Exodus here, and one of the fundamental themes of the whole Bible is that at the very core, sin at its heart is idolatry. It's being slave, being in bondage to something. And when God comes in chapters 1 through 13, they all encounter him. They either encounter him in mercy or in judgment, depending on do they respond to him humbly like the Israelites, or do they respond to him pompously and proudly like Pharaoh? Who are you that I should obey you. And one of the things this teaches us, and one of the things we want to learn in worship every single week, is that there is a little Pharaoh who lives in all of us. You know, when you were five years old, you probably said on the playground something like, you're not the boss of me. You said that to someone, and in different ways, we haven't stopped saying it since. And there's a little Pharaoh in all of us. That's why we need every single week to come and to confess our sins, to remind ourselves that no matter what else has happened, my fundamental problem is sin, and the fundamental solution is his redemption. So 1 through 13, it teaches that God is deliverer. But in chapters 13 through 19, it teaches God as director, God who directs. He walks with them. He takes them out of slavery, but that's not the end of the story. There's a whole next chapter, and the whole next chapter is that he faithfully walks with them through the wilderness. They go through the wilderness in chapters 13 through 19. And I've got a little parentheses there, 20 through 24, because they come to Sinai. And then another way he directs is he gives them his commands how to live faithfully in his presence. But the first part, 13 through 19, is a little... Um, preview that God can be trusted in the wilderness. And so for 13 through 19, there's two key questions. Will he protect us and will he provide for us? Will he protect and will he provide? And then flip up the next slide because what I want you to see is the structure here of this section. The way it's actually structured yeah, is in chapter 14... Go back, Maxine, see if you can kind of get all of them lined up there. Because it's structured in this beautiful chiastic movement or movement that gives you circles. And so in chapter, well, sorry, I can see it on the back, but anyway, I'll just tell you. You just have to listen. Uh, In chapter 14 and chapter 17, the two questions is, will he protect us? Chapter 14, will he protect us from Pharaoh? Chapter 17, will he protect us from the Amalekites? Will he protect us? And then right in the middle, it moves in chapters the first uh, 15, and then in the first part of 17, it's will he provide? Does he provide water? And then right in the middle, it's will he provide food? So will he protect us from our enemies? Will he provide what we need in the wilderness? And that is the lesson of the wilderness. Will he protect us? Will he provide for us? And if you think about it, Your soul can't survive without a season of wilderness. Isn't it interesting how in the Bible, 
So often people encounter the Lord in the wilderness. It's where Jacob met him. It's where Moses met him. Hagar, Elijah, John the Baptist, they go, they're out in the wilderness. And if you think about it, why? Why is it that it's good for us to pass through these seasons of wilderness? You know, on the one hand, it's just common sense. Um, I remember reading several years ago, I tried to find this article so I could get it a little more exact, but the article was called The National Pastime. And it was about how um, parents in middle to upper class America have become obsessed with engineering the lives of their children. How what they want is they want their children, to, they want to place them on the path for a successful life which is what every parent wants. I don't think that's just a middle America kind of thing. I think every parent wants their child to be placed on a path so they can be successful in life. But this article is kind of obvious. He, the writer didn't have any children because he was pretty snarky. And, uh, and one of the things he talks about, the things we kind of do now, you can do things like genetic engineering. Um, the whole goal is to arrange the child's lives so that they're turbocharged for uh, success. But uh, he says, if you actually study great men and women throughout history, one of the universal themes is that all of them almost universally had one of their parents die when they were in childhood. And so with tongue-in-cheek, it was like, okay, Dad, put that on your to-do list. You really want them to succeed. So why is that, though? Why is it that there was a need to pass through that wilderness, that darkness? And this is exactly what happens here in Exodus, because they were, they were redeemed out of slavery, but slavery wasn't taken out of them. They were taken out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. They were still wrestling with questions of, can we trust him? Will he protect us? Desiring to be idolaters. And the, the shock is in chapters 1 through 13 is Pharaoh who says, who is the Lord that we should obey? And then in chapter 16, verse 28, it's Israel that says, who is the Lord that we should obey? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? We used to live there and we ate leeks and melons and cucumbers. Our lives were great and you brought us into this wilderness to murder us. And so it's Israel who says that. And the whole question in the wilderness is, can you trust him to be your protector and to be your provider? See, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't know how much, to change the metaphor, our life is built on sand until the wind and the rain come. And once it does, it proves to us what we're really basing our life on. This past week, I read an interesting article about the, um, the mass shooting in the First Baptist Church at Sutherland, Texas. You know, that was a year ago, a little over a year, a couple of week or two ago, they celebrated kind of the year anniversary of that shooting. And it was so interesting because, you know, all the television cameras are gone. There's no media coverage of uh, Sutherland, Texas now, but there's actually been a remarkable revival that's happened to that church. And uh, the pastor there was kind of saying, you know, his whole life, it was, you know, her, all his ministry there was just, it was a difficult place to minister, and the church was really struggling, and he prayed and prayed for revival, but didn't want it to come this way. But there was this revival. One of the questions that the, the writer of the article is, is uh, why? Why did this cause all of a sudden people to come to the church and to reevaluate their life and to reexamine what's important. And then you could look at Charleston as well, where there's shooting at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. There's a thriving ministry there now that wasn't there just a few years ago before the shooting. And the question is why? It's almost like going through that darkness 
force them to be snapped awake to the reality of what really matters, what's important, what's necessary, and what's not. The writer of the article I was reading, they were saying, is this a sign of emotional weakness, that people need the church in times when they're broken? I thought, well, maybe, but that's not a bad thing. That's only a bad thing if you try to pretend like you're emotional, that you're not weak. You're not needy. You go through the wilderness because it teaches you what you actually need. You know, one of the, my favorite things we've done here, and we're, we're excited to try and get these things going back again, is we called it Table for Ten. And so we'd have people who come over to our house, and we'd have a meal, and we'd just discuss and talk and hear about uh, new people who'd visited uh, the church, hear about you. Our whole goal was to hear about your story and your loves. Where have you been, and, and what do you love? And Cynthia, we love doing that. It was one of our favorite things we've done. And one thing that always struck me is we talk about people's story and we say, all right, go back, you know, kind of what brought you here to Orlando? And most people who live here are not from here. It's a fairly transient place and have kind of come with change of job situation, different life. And uh, most people's stories that kind of had brought them here in the last five or 10 years, there was this season of wondering, the season of passing through the wilderness, the season of doubt, darkness, questioning. Sometimes it began with a diagnosis from the doctor or a pink slip from an employer or something that happened where it brought people through this season. And one of the questions we'd ask is, all right, if you had the opportunity, if like the 2018 you could go back in time to the 2009 you when you first heard the diagnosis, what would you say? What advice would you give to you? And probably 90% of the time, do you know what the response was? I'd tell myself to relax, to trust. He's got you. He will take care of you. He will protect you. He will provide for you. And you know what that means? That means if the 2000, so if you're in a season right now, we are walking through the wilderness and you're wondering, I don't know if, if he will protect me. I don't know if he'll provide for me. I, I don't know. We're in the wilderness and we're filled with anxiety. If the 2024 you could come back and have lunch with the 2018 you, you know what the chances are they'd say? They'd say, relax. He's got you. He will protect you. He will provide for you. That's the story of the wilderness. The story of the wilderness is to remind us that he can be trusted to provide and protect and sustain us. So the story of breaking us free from slavery helps us see that we need to be broken from our idolatry. Idolatry is slavery and we need freedom. But the story of the wilderness is that we need freedom from anxiety. Because so much of our anxiety is built on the, the doubt or the question. It's built on pride. Because I think I know better than God how my life should go. And it doesn't look like he's getting it right. And so I need to do something about it. But the story of the wilderness teaches us he will provide, he will protect. And then now we move into the last section, the last part of the story of the book of Exodus. And it's that the God who dwells. So he delivers, he directs. And then he dwells. Because the point, the reason why this makes for a bad Hollywood script is because the whole point of all of the action is to get you into his presence. 
The whole point is not to entertain you, but it's to encounter him. It's to bring you into his presence. The point of the book of Exodus, so you read through Exodus, and you think, oh man, it's it's so much action. It's moving, moving. Then you get in verse 19, and they come up to Sinai, and you realize from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers 10, they are at, at Sinai. They don't move. The only action is Moses goes up to the mountain, hears God's voice, and then they have to come down to go live it out. They come into his presence. We're actually going to look at this more next week because it's actually very important for how we shape and structure our worship service. But the whole point of the book is to bring you into his presence. His dwelling is the point. He delivers so that you can dwell. He directs so that you can dwell. He does all of these things so you can come into his presence in worship. That's why the whole rest of the book is all about establishing the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tent where the Lord dwells so we can come and meet him. And that's one of the great themes of the whole Bible. It started in the garden, where the garden was the place where heaven and earth touched down. It's where heaven and earth dwelled together. But one of the things, the devastating effects of sin is that it separates. It separates heaven and earth. It separates uh, life, physical life, um, physical spirit. It separates. Separates people, separates relationships, separates us from God. But in the garden, they dwelled together. Sin came in and they were separate. And then the whole story of the Bible is how do we get them back together again so they can stay? And one of the first movements is the tabernacle. It's a place where they touch again. And then the temple is another place where they touch again. And then John 1.1, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He's another place where heaven and earth touch again. And then as the church gathers here while we wait to the final place where they dwell together, never to be removed, the church is one of the places where they touch again. Heaven and earth coming together so we can come into his presence. So next week, we're actually going to look at that structure and how it plays out. But one of the things I want you to see is part of the order of our worship service is to follow the order of that story. So the first part is that uh, we begin with a call to worship because we don't just kind of prance into worship on our own. God actually summons us He summons us into his presence. And then once we're called, we joyfully gather together, say we go together with this people into his presence. That's why we have the meet and greet, so you can meet one another. It's a great way just to say hello, but it's also a weekly reminder that we come together. And then you ascend up. One of the things we'll see next week is you look at the three movements of sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. It started with a sacrifice of sin. So the blood made a way open so you could come in. Then you had a burnt offering that you gave so you could go up. Then you had the fellowship offering so once you were in his presence, you feasted with him. And then you left to live a joyful, obedient life. So this movement up into his presence and then out into the world. And what we want is our worship service, the structure to follow that movement where you're called out of the world into his presence. We come up, then we feast at his table with him through word and sacrament. And then we respond in joyful praise and giving of our lives. We live under the shadow of his good word and then we go out down the mountain into the world. Is to follow this kind of movement. All right, so think about this, and let's look at Exodus. Look at the Exodus forty, and just the summary of that story. Because as the whole story story can be summarized in the last part of Exodus forty, it says, "Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle." And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So his, his presence is there. It's a cloud. It's his glory. Then all their travels, wherever they went, the cloud was there. And part of the story of Exodus, it, it, it makes a difficult movie because it's not meant to entertain you. It's meant to encounter him which is what worship is all about. Not meant to entertain you, it's meant to encounter him, so we come into his presence. But the story is that you can either live under the shadow of two clouds. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 1 through 13, it begins under the shadow of the cloud of death and slavery and bondage and exploitation and abuse. You can live under that shadow or you can travel out from under the shadow, underneath the cloud of his glory, his protection, his loving wings. And the whole story of Exodus is how to move from here to there. And on this path, you see God who routes the power of his enemies. And he grants his people deliverance. And he brings them into his presence by the blood of his lamb. And he provides for them. He protects them as well. And then he comes in his person to dwell among them, promising never to leave or forsake them. So what do we respond to when we worship? Our response is we want to enter into that story. See, music is powerful. Stories are powerful. But the beauty of the gospel is it's music set to story where you enter into it. And what we desire every week is to walk through that story. Because worship is responding appropriately to what he has revealed. So that grand story, the grand story of deliverance, of direction and dwelling can be our story. It can be your story. And every Sunday as we come in, our goal is that Sunday by Sunday, you be reminded as you walk through the service of worship that His presence is your highest good and your greatest need. You be reminded Sunday by Sunday that man doesn't live on bread alone but we live on every word that comes from his mouth. Sunday by Sunday, you can be reminded that our greatest joy and hope is to respond to who he is, to respond to him as Savior and to repent of trying to be our own Pharaohs, to respond to him as protector and provider, trusting him to provide the food in the desert and the nourishment we need and respond to him to be our only master, knowing that full life is only found in his presence. Let's pray.